You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And if you don't have your Bibles, it should be on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. In Jesus' name pray. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy uh, daylight savings time, said no one today. <laughs> I was joking with a couple people, like if daylight savings time fell on a Monday, like this thing would be changed ASAP, because everyone would be showing up late for work, and employers aren't going to have that. So, uh, that said, it's good to see you all. Thanks for making your way here. Uh, we have Redemption Kids for ages 2 to 4, so you may make your way over across the hallway if that serves you this morning. Thank you for serving, Jen. I know there's someone else in there, so thank you. Leah, thank you for serving. All right, as you can tell, uh, we're in Ephesians 1 today. We're continuing our sermon series called The Grace of Salvation. Where we are, as you can tell, we're just putting a spotlight on what it means to be saved, what God does to save. Uh, next week, it's kind of so you know the trajectory, I'll preach on sanctification. We'll unpack that theological word and what that means. And then week after that, Lord willing, I'll preach on glorification. And that'll round out our sermon series. And that'll actually lead us right into uh, Palm Sunday and Easter and then Book of Hebrews. So that's the trajectory, so you know kind of where we're headed. Uh, this last week, I was going over my notes um, from our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Half of you weren't a part of the church when that happened in 2021. And I was just kind of going over my notes in the book of Ephesians. I realized that I actually preached three sermons on these verses. So three sermons on verses 3 to 6 of chapter 1, um, chapter 1 of Ephesians. And I was just like, oh man, I forgot how much time we actually sat in, in that passage because of all the, the rich theology that exists in Ephesians 1, in particular verses 3 to 6. So if today's sermon like stirs you or intrigues you and you're like, hey, I want to learn more, there's content at our website that really does do a deeper dive into um, these glorious truths from God's Word. Now I'm going back to the well uh, of, of Ephesians 1 because... It's a place in the Bible where we see the links of the chain connected, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the truths from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, should give you every reason to celebrate this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at how God declares his people not guilty, and like, we can praise God for that. He declares me not guilty, you, Christian, not guilty. That gives us a chance to celebrate as well. Today's sermon will have a, like a similar vibe. If the Father has adopted you, you've been brought into his family. You see that word in our passage today, adoption. There are, 
there are massive implications upon your life if God has adopted you. If you're not a Christian, um, this sermon lands on you a little bit differently. And my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will open your heart to see and know Christ. As we look at God's word, I pray the Holy Spirit would reveal to you Christ as Savior and Lord. Like I keep saying, in every room that I preach, there's two people, two, two groups of people, those who follow Christ and those who do not. And my prayer for you, if you do not follow Christ, is that the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ to you this morning as we look at his word, and that you would surrender. You would surrender to Christ. So let me pray. Um, need God's help as we look at this glorious doctrine of adoption. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I, I ask for help this morning. Um, I am needy and tired, and Lord, just ask that you would come and that your word would be set loose this morning in this room, and that in the power of the Spirit, you would indeed uh, speak to hearts and minds. Lord, help me to be faithful to what you have already spoken. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never had the joy of experiencing the opportunity to be an adoptive parent. Uh, we've explored it in the past, but we just never followed through. But over the years, I've obviously known numerous people, especially Christians, who've adopted children. And I know you, you have those, you know those people as well or you are an adoptive parent. I've seen parents adopt children from orphanages in countries of extreme poverty, right? I've seen that. Um, I've seen parents adopt locally. For various reasons, usually a birth mother forgoes her right to raise uh, her biological child, and the child's adopted. The motive to adopt can differ from one set of parents to the next, but there's obviously many shared experiences. You get a room of adoptive parents together, and there's a lot of shared experiences. I think it is fair to say that adoption is a good and gracious act, good and gracious act. Whether the adoptive parents are Christian or not, choosing to adopt means sacrifice. It means sacrifice. It means giving up some liberties to invite another human being or two or three into your family. You're saying, okay, I'm going I'm to forego these liberties because I'm going to bring someone in to my family. I mean, liberties like money, right? Adoption's expensive. And so I, I applaud parents who give up much to adopt a child. Say so yes and amen. Earthly adoptions are a powerful metaphor for spiritual adoptions. It's much more powerful than maybe we initially realize. With earthly adoptions, we see a glimpse of a, of a greater divine adoption. And with divine adoption comes assurance of salvation. So I want you to make a direct connection this morning, and it's this. If you've been adopted by God, you can make a direct connection and know that your salvation is assured. If you've been adopted, you can make that claim, I've been saved. It's easy to understand the concept of adoption, but we sometimes fail to see the implications of adoption. The fundamental question we need to answer is, what does it mean to be adopted into a family, especially a spiritual family? Like, were you born in a broken home? 
being adopted by God brings healing. Perhaps you're like the Powers family, and we're, we're doing our level best to raise our kids in the Lord, right? But even so, I'm, I'm a sinful, flawed, earthly father, and I want my kids to follow a heavenly father. Or perhaps you like me and how I grew up. I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. I did not grow up in that environment that my kids are getting. Was still, there's still excellent news. There is a more important family for a person to be a, a part of. So my goal this morning is to help you to see the beauty of adoption in God's family and for you to know that you can rest and be at peace being a part of God's family. Like When God adopts a child, he does not throw away the paperwork at any point. <laughs> at any point. So adoption is not an unusual category in the Bible. I think it appears more than we realize. For example, if you read 1 John, you will notice how God's people are repeatedly called sons, daughters, and children. Even what Ryan read this morning from Romans 8, you keep seeing that language of sons and children. Uh, Here's a biblical example of adoption. Moses. You ever think about Moses? You might remember from Exodus 2, where, where we read about his birth. Uh, one problem, and we read in the story, Moses was born into slavery. Pharaoh was not excited that the Hebrew people were having babies like crazy, thus increasing the Hebrew population. Therefore, you, know, you might remember, Pharaoh throws down this edict and says, we need to kill all the firstborn males. Same thing Herod did in the New Testament. This was Pharaoh's attempt at like population control. So what what do we read? The mother of Moses does what is best for her newborn son. She puts him in a basket and floats him down the river. And it seems crazy that a mother would do that, but that was actually her best option. Either he's going to die, or maybe someone will grab him out of the river and have mercy on him. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Moses was in God's providence, the daughter of Pharaoh, grabbed Moses from the river. And her immediate instinct was to adopt him. The survival of Moses resulted in him becoming one of the most prolific figures in human history. So God used an adopted child to impact the world. When the book of Ephesians was written, the circumstances of an orphan were dire. So let's make a beeline from, we see it in the Old Testament, now what do we see when the New Testament was written, first century. If you were an orphan, your situation was dire. If you didn't have a mom or dad. There was no foster care system at the time. There were no adoptive agencies. To be without a mother and father is to be without hope. It was to have no future. Now, yes, adoptions happened in isolated situations in the first century. Like the Romans had their legal procedure for adoptions. The Greeks had their legal procedures for adoption. But all in all, adoptions were rare, and it happened only if it benefited the adoptive family. Here's what Roman adoption looked like in the first century. It'll paint a good contrast in one point of comparison with God's divine act of adoption that we read about in Ephesians 1. The motive of Roman adoption was to continue the family line and maintain property ownership. 
So if a Roman adopted a child, it was for those particular reasons. How do we continue the family line? Like in the Powers family, my, my dad always talks about how the, the Powers name is going to end because he only has granddaughters, no grandsons, right? So let's say you're married, you have four children, but they're all daughters. Because you do not have a son, your good name will cease when you die. Your property will also be up for grabs when you're either buried in the ground or burned. Under the Roman patriarchal system, men had all the power, authority, rights, and privileges. So you can imagine how the motive for an adoptive son, generally speaking, was incredibly selfish. Not so with God. Not so with God. God's motive to adopt is selfless, not selfish. God does not adopt because he needs something from you. He adopts to bless. He adopts to bless. Because God is selfless in adoption, his children become the beneficiaries of a gracious act, which leads to the point of comparison between Roman law and God's divine act of adoption. When a son was adopted into the Roman family, he had all the rights and privileges of a naturally born son. The same idea holds true with God's adoptive system. Because you've been adopted into God's family, you've been given rights and privileges far exceeding any expectations that you could possibly have. To be adopted by God means that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. To be adopted means you are a son or daughter of the creator of the universe. To be adopted means the storehouse's doors that contain heavenly blessings. That's Ephesians 1 verse 4. Those doors, those storehouses' doors with all those heavenly blessings are yours. To be adopted by God means you have a father who is unselfish, loving, and caring and wants the best for you. And here's the sobering truth. Before God graciously adopted you, Christian, you were a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.1. You were a child of the devil. John 1 states it clearly. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not Love his brother, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The only point I want you to see from 1 John is that if the Father has not adopted you, you are a child of the devil. Which is kind of staggering to think about, right? But there's no third way. A person does not need to join a satanic cult or pull out the tarot cards to be a child of the devil. Most people are unaware of their allegiance. <laughs> Christian, you were a child of the devil. But God broke in and breathed life upon your cold, dead heart. That was regeneration from several weeks ago. And God gave you the gifts of faith and repentance. That was after regeneration. God has declared you not guilty. That was last week. And now you are an adopted son or daughter of the Father, of a heavenly Father. And as we'll see in a moment, you are a recipient of God's assurance. 
So as you can tell, I hope, adoptions are a powerful metaphor. Earthly adoptions are a powerful metaphor for heavenly adoptions. And the Bible speaks, I think, really clearly about temporal and spiritual adoptions. So let's take a closer look, looking at God's benevolent will, his good will to adopt undeserving children of wrath and sons of disobedience into his loving family. I want to examine or closely examine Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6, by asking several simple questions about spiritual adoption. I used this methodology several weeks back. When, how, and why? When does adoption take place? What does the text simply tell us? How does adoption take place? Again, what does the text tell us? And why does adoption take place? What does the text say? What does God's word say? I, I really want to jump to the why because <laughs> it's just so good and so amazing. But I think logically speaking, we've got to kind of work through these three questions and then see how powerful the why is. Why does adoption take place? I think the answer to these questions reveal the assurance of faith we can have because of God's gracious will to adopt. So first, when does adoption take place? Before uh, joining the team of folks who planted Redemption Hill, I was a pastor in the Twin Cities, and um, I was a pastor over youth. And one time at youth group, uh, this, this gal came up to me, and she's like, Pastor Sean, she's like, it's my gotcha day. And I thought she was making a joke, and I missed the joke. <laughs> Like, what's going on? What does that mean? And so several minutes later, one of her friends came up and explained to me what her gotcha day was all about. Her gotcha day was the moment her parents took her, took her out of the Ru Russian orphanage and took her home. And to this girl, her gotcha day was more significant than her birthday. Like, think about that. We all celebrate birthdays. Like, I was born April 25th, 1981. Totally aged myself there. Right? Her, her day of the year was gotcha day, her adoption day. If you are a Christian and the sovereign God of the universe has adopted you, here's the question I want you to answer. When was your gotcha day? Age four, 14, 24, 44, 64, 84? Your gotcha day is the most important day of your life. We read in Ephesians 1.4 that your gotcha day was purpose before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, another word is used to describe when your adoption was decreed by God. The term used in verse 5 is closely tied to the word chosen or election. That Greek word is literally electos. Here is part of verse 5. In love... He, God the Father, predestined us for adoption. So I think we have to answer a question, another question here. What does it mean for God to predestine you? That word pops up often in the New Testament. It means God marked out or determined your destiny before Genesis 1-1. So before Genesis 1-1 was written, as it were, God predestined you. It does not matter at what age you were saved. The sin you committed could not keep you from God if he had predetermined to regenerate your cold dead heart. So predestined, predestination can be, can be a heady theological word, and I get it, and its meaning is undoubtedly debated by anyone who's interested in theology. I've, I've been in those conversations. They're fun to have. 
There's nuance here, but there's, there's one particular uh, interpretation of this word predestination as it connects to adoption that I do want to dismiss. A troubling interpretation of predestination is that in eternity past, God like pulled out a crystal ball, right? And he was able to kind of look into the future and see who was going to say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. So he got the crystal ball and he looked into the future. Now, I don't think that's consistent with Scripture. If God did pull out the crystal ball and looked into the future to see who would become a Christian, then God's sovereignty is severely limited. Severely limited. If God did not choose or predestine you in eternity past to be an adopted son or daughter, then I think we need to grab our Bibles and we have to begin to rip out whole chapters, like Romans 8. Let's go to Romans 8. It says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, there's that word again, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Like, (laughs) we were talking earlier how uh, I remember sitting through a sermon series just on Romans 8. Entire sermon series just on that chapter because we see God's amazing power to save. We see about we read about the beautiful work of God to save. Again, does God foreknow and predestine mean He pulled out the crystal ball? No, not at all. God foreknew and pre predestined you for adoption because He determined it in eternity past. Consider God's predestination in terms of authorship or ownership. Who is the author of your life? You or God? God. Who is the owner of your life? You or God? God. Um, imagine with me for a moment that you're the author of a novel. Like you actually wrote a book. <laughs> Congratulations, you wrote a book, right? And it's a novel. A novel has a plot line with characters. I've read enough books to kind of like know what's going on. Well, because you're the author of the book, you know the beginning from the end. You wrote the book. You've chosen how the hero will overcome evil. You have determined how the villain will be destroyed. There are characters that you highlight as good and others as bad, perhaps. Well, when someone else picks up that book and reads the story, the details do not all of a sudden change. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure story. The story and the story's pieces have been determined. And all the reader needs to do is just to step back and enjoy the book. So when did your adoption take place? God wrote you into his story before the foundation of the world. And you were created, Christian, to be adopted. At just the right time, God regenerated your cold, dead heart and gave you the gift of faith. All of this is possible because God declared you justified, which is why you are now a son or daughter of God. So that's the first question, when? Here's the second question we need to tackle. How does God's adoption take place? Now let's look back at our Bibles. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. In love, that's the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ. The short answer to the question of how is that you were adopted through Christ and to Christ. Like it's, it's crazy how emphatic the Greek language is right here. 
it's crazy how emphatic the Greek language is when highlighting how your adoption took place. There is no escaping that the how of your adoption is 100% because of Christ and for Christ. I mean, let's observe some reasons about how your adoption has taken place through Christ. First, the act of adoption is solely because of God's grace to give you faith to believe in Christ and declare you justified. You had no authority or power to tell God to adopt you, and there's no way for you to meander into God's family. A person cannot conjure up the faith and be like, believe, God had to do something. We talked a lot about that. The same principle is true for earthly adoptions, especially the adoption of young children, right? Think about it. Children who are adopted, generally speaking, don't have a choice. Like that girl from the Russian orphanage. She had no choice in the matter about whom would she be adopted and who was going to adopt her. It's only because of the will of the adoptive parents that a child is taken from the orphanage and into the new family. It is by grace alone that you are part of God's family. By grace alone. I mean, I'm thinking about that for myself, and I'm like, Lord, may that humble my heart. May that humble my heart. Second, your adoption is a reality because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only path for God the Father to adopt was for the Son of God to take on the wrath of the Father for your sin and for the sin of all God's people. You've been adopted because Jesus took your place at the cross. I mean, it should have been Sean Powers at the cross. And to show the world he had the power over sin and death, Jesus rose from the dead. That is why we say he is risen. We don't speak in the past tense. We speak in the present tense. He is risen. God the Father sacrificed his one and only son so that you could be adopted. Your adoption paperwork is found and filled out at the cross of Jesus Christ. Like I told you at the beginning of this sermon series, it is straight gospel. That's all, that's all we're talking about in these last few weeks and the next couple weeks. Straight gospel. So that we may settle in our hearts what God has done for us. In this world, as you know, everything has a price. If you want something, you got to give up something. God the Father gave up his son to take you in as a son or daughter. So, how was your adoption secured? through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Here's the third point about how you were adopted. You were adopted because God decreed your adoption. Look at the entire statement of verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Whose will? Your will? No, God's will. God's will. I mean, a theme that emerges from the first half of Ephesians 1 is the sovereign will of God. In verse 5, we see the mystery of God's will in redemption was made known to his adopted children. The same idea is reinforced in verse 9 of Ephesians 1 when it says redemption took place according to the purpose of God's will. And then only two verses after that we read, in him we have obtained an inheritance. If you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, he is, you have obtained an inheritance, those, those heavenly storehouses that have been opened up for you. God lavishes that upon you. 
having been predestined, there's that word again, keeps popping up, according to the purpose of him who works all things, here it is again, he repeated, according to the counsel of his will. Sean Powers did not will his adoption into God's family. God willed it. The same Greek word for will or determine here is thelema. It's used repeatedly all throughout Ephesians 1. How did your predestined adoption take place? Again, according to the will of God. For some people, reading these verses is like experiencing another Copernican revolution. Here's what I mean. Before the 16th century, almost everyone thought the stars, the universe, revolved around the earth. Right? Copernicus. And then Copernicus comes along. He's like, hey, guys, I have an idea. Um, I don't think it's like that. And everyone's kind of like, come on. Everything, everyone viewed it as a man-centered thing. The universe must revolve around us. And Copernicus is like, nah, I'm fairly certain that everything revolves around the sun. I mean, what Copernicus said was significant. It was a significant paradigm shift for the day. And his observation eventually impacted everyday life, even though he was initially rebuffed. Everyone thought he was crazy. I mean, the same idea is true for some people when they're confronted with the sovereign will and purpose of God in salvation, justification, and adoption. It's like, for so long, I've been thinking that everything centers around me. Now you're telling me everything centers around God? In his will? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. It's another Copernican revolution. It, it does, if you, if you shift from a man-centered view of salvation to a God-centered view of salvation, it changes how you look at the world. It changes how you understand God and his graciousness and his mercy. And as we're going to see in a moment, his love. According to God's sovereign will and purpose, he took you into his family. It would be, I think, arrogant to say that, that you, again, inserted yourself into God's family. So how are Christians adopted into God's family? By the sovereign will of God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The third and final question that I want to ask is why adoption takes place. There are several reasons why you were adopted by God. For a moment, look at Ephesians 1.4 again. If you are reading the ESV, what are the last two words in verse 4? It actually begins the next sentence. In love. In love. The love of God the Father for you is so overwhelming that in your place he gave over his son Jesus to suffer and die. The how of your adoption is wholly and entirely because of God's will through the Son. And the why of adoption is because God loves you. The Father loves you so much that he sacrificed his Son. And the sum of who God is, is love. Another pattern of Ephesians 1, specifically the first half of Ephesians 1, is that you repeatedly read in him and in Christ over and over again, in him, in Christ. The pattern is slightly altered when we see the words at the end of verse 4, in love. In love, God predestined you for adoption. Again, we read the when, but we also see the why, love. 
The point is reinforced um, at the end of verse 6. Take a look at that verse. It reads, He has blessed us in the beloved. It's a little bit confusing in the English, but it literally says God adopted his children and have been blessed with heavenly blessings in the beloved one, Jesus. The beloved one is Jesus Christ. Once you are in the beloved one, you are always in the beloved one. One of the fantastic consequences of adoption is that you cannot become unadopted because you rest in the beloved one. Now, the when, the how, and the why of a divine adoption points to the promise of assurance. Once again, let's dial into the comparison between the sweet picture of earthly adoptions with a heavenly adoption. I've never met an adoptive parent who, once they've signed the the adoption paperwork, proceeded to rip them up in the future. Maybe that person exists. I certainly have never met that person. The opposite is true. When good parents adopt a child, they know it's for life. They know it's for life. Even though there are ups and downs with parenting, they know they're in it till the very end. There's no going back. There's no unsigning the adoption paperwork. With God, the point is more pronounced. It's more pronounced. God will keep his adopted sons and daughters not until the end, not only until the end, physical death, but he keeps them forever. God's gracious and loving grip on you, Christian, is far greater than your grip on him. And praise God that's the case. Because if the reverse were true, I would have let go a long time ago. As most of you know, I've been inserting our denominational confession of faith into sermons and into our church liturgy. Now, I don't know about you, but I appreciate being a part of our confessional denomination because we see the depth and breadth of our theology. We have 35 chapters or sections in our confession of faith. Chapter 14 of our confession of faith is all about adoption. We'll talk about adoption. It's a shorter section, but it's extremely meaningful. And then in chapter 20 of our confession of faith, you can read about the assurance of grace and salvation. Here's a short snippet of what our confession says about assurance. Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring endeavoring to walk in a good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. They can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. I point out that the assurance of salvation does not give and I should point this out, that this assurance does not give an adopted child a license to sin. No, far from it. Uh, Romans 6.1, shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not, Paul says. He obliterates that argument. An adopted child of God is given the freedom to live for God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight against sin and live distinctly for God before others. With this said, you Christian, caress and rejoice knowing God has secured and assured your adoption and salvation. I want to end by making one observation and then perhaps several application points. My observation of today's passage is that it's striking to me and helpful to know 
that what God says in his word is a part of our everyday reality. For example, family, familial terms, family terms, are used to describe the relationship of the triune God, right? And as we see today, we can make a connection between spiritual adoption and earthly adoptions. I love how God, through his word, makes it easy for us to understand his relationship with us because of what we see in our present reality. Now, here are several application points that are expressed in our confession of faith in our chapter on adoption, chapter 14. And this obviously comes out through scripture, right? You, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, you can always cry out to your father. Like think about Galatians 4, 6. It says we call out Abba, Father. There are times when my kids come up to me and they're like, hey, dad, I got a question. Hey, dad, can you help me with this? And I do work from home, so this happens more often than not. And there are times where I'm like, hold on a second. Hold on. I got to finish this one thing. And if you're a son or daughter of a heavenly father, God does not say, hold on. He does not say to you, wait a second, I need to finish this text message. He's there for you. He is a father. At any moment, at any time, we can cry out, Abba, Father. 2 a.m., 2 p.m. He is always ready to hear our cry and our call. Second, we read that God has pity. I think a better word there is compassion on all his sons and daughters. Psalm 103, verse 13. Every child stubs their toe and skins their knee. Like every child falls down at some point. But here's the deal with God. Before, before we can even get up, he's there. He is there. He's there showing us compassion upon our lives. Your heavenly father protects you, Christian. That's Psalm 23, verse 4. Protection does not negate suffering, but the father has ensured an eternal protection over your life. There's a fourth application point. Christian, your heavenly Father provides for you. Matthew 7, verses 9 to 11. The Father does not give you everything you want, but he gives you everything you need. Five, fifth, five. That's not even a word. Fifth application point. Our good and gracious Father chastens or disciplines us when it's needed. Hebrews 12, verse 6. Our Father disciplines us because he loves us. Any good parent knows that discipline is rooted in a love for their child. Right? So do I need to be disciplined by God when I fall out of line? You bet I do. You bet I do. And that is actually an expression of God's love. Here's a final thought about adoption insurance. Perhaps no passage in the Bible explains the, the permanence of God's adoption than John 10. John 10 changed everything I knew about adoption and assurance when I read this many years ago. It rocked my world. And I, I think I mentioned this the first week of this particular sermon series, and I want to go back to it. We read in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, this is Jesus speaking, and I lay down my life for the sheep, his sacrificial death, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there's one flock and one shepherd. And then several verses later, our Lord continues, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Hear the assurance there. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Man, is that good news. That is such good news. Like, I'm a, I'm, okay, the confession hour. I'm a dumb sheep. I'm constantly trying to get out of the sheep pen. And God's like, nah. Whether it's by discipline or grace or mercy, however, he's like, get back in the sheep pen, Sean. Knock it off. Dumb sheep. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We don't read the word adoption in these passages, but we see what it looks like, Right? The good shepherd must bring his sheep into the sheepfold. There are other sheep not currently in the sheepfold who will respond when they finally hear the voice of their shepherd. We don't read the word assurance in this passage, but we see what it looks like. Once the sheep are in the sheepfold, they'll never perish. The electing love of the Father ensures that no one will snatch the sheep out of the Father's hand. Guys, guys, how is that not good news? Honestly. How is that not good news? John 10, Ephesians 1, the story of Moses, 1 John, and go down the line, all these passages, I think show us the beauty of adoption, the power of adoption, God's love in adopting. And I think it should cause us to rest in the assurance that God does not undo or throw away the adoption paperwork. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.